It's the Perry and Shauna podcast on the real life journey with you, reminding you that you are Abba's beloved child and that Jesus has called you into his massive mission to heal the world. Super excited to have Dr. Jeremy Grinnell joining us this morning. He just popped into the studio. He earned his PhD in systematic theology from Calvin Seminary in GR here, and he taught theology at a local seminary for nearly 15 years. He's the author of Bellowing of Cain. You can catch him all about Jeremy and his book at bellowingofcain.com, bellowingofcain.com. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning. Happy Monday. Yes, happy to Monday to you, too. Early. <laughs> it's a little earlier than I'm used to being up. Dark 030. Did you yeah, see the right. moon this morning? I did. It's beautiful. Uh, it's a sliver. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's hanging really low. It's really bright and large, but it's like the perfect, perfect crescent yep. moon. You can see the little guy. It's like out of a storybook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can see the guy on the end with his fishing pole. That's right. His yeah. legs hanging over the side. It's pretty cool. You got to yep. check it out. So this morning... We're going to just dive into Monday morning and mm-hmm. talk about the incarnation of Jesus. We're going to talk about yes. the humanity and yes. the divinity of Jesus Christ. Yep. And what he came to do. That's right. It is the, you know, if you think about it, Paul said there's there's one thing that Paul camped on. He said, if, if this is not the case, then your faith is, it's wasted. It's futile. Mm-hmm. It's, it's voided out. And that one thing was the resurrection of this man. That if Jesus is not who he said he was, if he does not come back to life, um, then all the rest of the story falls apart. It's It's like, yeah, right. It's like the central story of the scriptures. Everything kind of leads toward it. Everything falls away from it. It's the defining, it's the defining event of not just the Bible, but human history. Mm -hmm. So it's worth climbing inside of. All right. Well, let's climb inside of it because we want to know, we want to know not only um, how it's, how relevant it is to the faith that we believe, but how that impacts the way that we Absolutely. live our life in and, relationship with the Lord. And 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 knowing someone, knowing a person, uh, you want to know all about them, right? I mean, it gives you more to love them with, if you understand. So when we, we talk about Jesus, uh, it, the goal is getting to know Jesus mm-hmm. so that uh, the more we know about the story, the more we know about his life, his death, his resurrection, the more it gives us to love God with. Mm. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about Let's talk about the promise. Hmm. Let's talk about the promise of the incarnation. It is. Well, it's a promise from the very beginning. It's a remarkable thing. We have Adam and Eve, you know, at the foot of the tree. They sin. uh, They come. Everything's falling apart around them. And then God utters this promise to Eve that, you know, from you is going to come someone who's going to fix all this. Mm -hmm. You know, the serpent's uh, head will be crushed. His heel will be crushed in return. And and it's a remarkable thing because, of course, we we want to say, we have to say, Adam and Eve should not have sinned. Right. Like they shouldn't have done it, right? And when we, if we could undo it, the fall, we certainly would. And yet Paul says that God took that event, took that brokenness and used it as the event by which the world would be redeemed, that this would become a story of redemption with the Messiah. And I have always found that to be just such a, a startling comfort that God is powerful to take those things which came to destroy us and use them instead mm-hmm. to do some something glorious. Yeah, I want to erase them. Like when I when I right. make it personal, when I make it about my own life, and I think about just the things that I've done that that cause me to feel ashamed, that frustrate me because that's part of who I am. Like mm-hmm. I don't I I don't want it in my story. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I want it erased. But but what I'm hearing you say is. God has a plan even in that stuff. That's right. God, it's God, part of us becoming who we're going to be. That's right. God God is the great Bob Ross. 
You remember Bob right? Ross the yes. painter? Yes. You know how he would like slash this. And you're like, no. No, no, no. What did you just, that big brown slash across your canvas? He goes, no, 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 no. It's just a happy little accident. And then he takes happy that, what looks accident. like a mistake. Right. And, and it ends up becoming the centerpiece of the whole painting. So, yeah, there is a sense that we we all ought to regret and mourn the sin we do. I mean, that's that's the right response to wish we had never done it. Mm -hmm. And yet to be comforted in the fact that God, from the very beginning of the human story, is about taking our brokenness and our loss and our sin and doing something with Mm -hmm. it, doing something glorious and beautiful. And that's essentially what Jesus becomes um, the model, the archetype, the the example of what God can do. God, yeah. that God can take something as broken as the fall and turn it into a story of redemption. I, I have to just talk more about the Bob Ross thing because every time you're seeing him do something amazing and beautiful and there's the yellows and the oranges and the reds and a little bit of blues and you're just loving what's happening and then you see him take his brush and dip black. it in the black yep. or the dark, deep, dark brown and even just kind of mix the, the black and the brown together. Like, what and is in, he doing? Inside of me, I'm like, no. Don't do it. Don't do it. I want to make it stop. But it ends up being what creates the depth. It makes the yellows more bright. It, it makes all the colors more beautiful. That's right. It changes the focus of the whole painting. Yeah. Into, it turns it into something else. And and that's I think our lives are a lot like that. Mm-hmm. History is like that. That God is working in the midst of not God doesn't, you know, stop the evil. I mean, there's a sense of that, you know, you the bad things still come. Right. And yet God is faithful to take all of those and and use them. Hmm. And it doesn't always make sense to me. No. I mean, you even feel Christ in Gethsemane. I mean, this is such a comfort to us because Christ himself, who who knew what the agenda was, who knew what the mission was going to be, still there in the garden, it has the the candor and authenticity to say to his father, you know, if if there's a if there's a right. way to do this without the suffering. You know, I, I'd, I'd be perfectly content with that. And yet when the heavens are silent in response, his response is the same response we're supposed to have. Well, your will be done right. because you are going to do something through this. And so it's a great comfort that Christ himself gave us the model of being able to come to God, both with our fears and our apprehensions, our mm. regrets, uh, the things we wish we could change, the things we wish God would change. And yet at the end of the day, we have we find the courage because of Christ's example to to pray what he prayed and say what he said father okay your will be done and there's a word for this there's a term for this in spiritual direction that i've only just learned it's 50 years old before i heard this term it's the term holy indifference holy h o l y mm-hmm. um, and it's this idea of of when you don't know what the right move is, when you don't know the way forward, when you're when you don't know whether you know there's a I, th- I think it was Evagrius, a Vagrius, an old church father who who came up with the term, and he's like, I don't know whether to be rich or poor, right? Which is better? Is it to be better to be rich so you can do things with the money and help people? Is it better to be poor so you learn the, you know, the? He says, I don't know. So God, you choose, you you do it. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of giving it giving it all back to God mm-hmm. to let God decide because I don't know what to make of my life, I don't know how to make good out of my out of my sin any more than Adam and Eve did, any more than Moses did or David or Isaiah, anyone. And yet God does know. Yeah. Jeremy, what do you think? What do you think was on their minds or what was the anticipation of what the Messiah was going to be like? Well, the the, the thing is we probably ought to first acknowledge first is that had we been there, we probably would have missed it too. 
Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we have this historical. Persp- we probably do. Yeah. Now. Well, yeah. Even yeah. now we do like we're all going to someday when we get to heaven, we're all going to go, oh, that's what it really meant. Right. So yeah. we're, we're kind of in, we're all going to get surprised that way. But the, the you know, you t- look at the disciples. It was clear what they expected of Jesus. You know, like, is it now time for you to bring the kingdom or, you know, hey, look at the temple. They're, they're always yeah. trying to, you know, is this when you're going to reveal yourself? They were reflecting the common kind of uh, wisdom of the day is that the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one who was promised was going to come primarily as a, a political, religious, military leader who would, in their mind, uh, remove the Roman yoke, mm-hmm. free them, and set Israel back up on a you know something sort of like a Solomonic uh, you know prosperity, like they had under David and, and Solomon and things. Um, and that was sort of the popular view of the Messiah, and so it's understandable that they didn't get it. But the Old Testament, the the prophets, they they actually speak in very conflicted ways. You do you do have that conquering hero mm-hmm. image. It shot through the the prophets, but then you climb inside Isaiah and other places, and they begin to talk about the the, the grief bearer, the one who's the one who will suffer. You know, mm-hmm. uh, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah fifty three, and and it was true that the, the Jewish people really didn't know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at it and we understand it in this sort of twofold: he came first to suffer, and then one day he will come in glory to conquer and claim the world as his own. So we, from our privileged perspective in history, can see sort of as a twofold movement. You know, right. the descent into the descent into sorrow and ignominy before. There is glory. Mm-hmm. They couldn't. They couldn't see that. It was all mixed together in their mind, and there was a mystery as to how how the Messiah could be both this suffering servant and this conquering hero. And again, that's a great that I that comforts me because I, it means that um, the sorrows in my life are not permanent. Hmm. But it means that you know if my if my life if if our life if human history is somehow being modeled by this Christ, then we have to remember that suffering always precedes glory. The only well, things that qualify for resurrection are dead with, things. That messes with me because I tend to resonate with the the Messiah makes all things right. And so in my mind, I want him to make all things right in my life, in my circumstances, right? And that is the that is the hope and the promise of what the Messiah will do. But like him, you know, be afraid. If you're going to follow Jesus, be prepared to follow Jesus. And the place he went first mm-hmm. was into sorrow and suffering. So don't be afraid of it. Yeah. Follow your Lord into it because only dead things qualify for resurrection. So don't be afraid of death. And I mean that both literally and, (laughs) you know, in life. Yeah. I mean, that's a good word, but it's a hard word at the same time. Easy to say. Hard to live. Right. So hard to live. But I mean, Jesus himself said in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Jeremy, you made a statement that rattled me a little bit. I mean, I mean it's not yeah. like shocking. It's it's kind of obvious. Right. But, but it's, this... you're saying the loud, the quiet part loud. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, I like that. You're saying the quiet part loud. So I'm going to butcher it. It was about the qualification qualification of the resurrection. Can you remake the statement? Sure, sure. The only things that qualify for resurrection are dead things. And so that's you know, whether you mean that literally or metaphorically, that's, um, it's a very ancient lesson. It's not even just Christianity. Nature itself teaches us this, you know, the Mm -hmm. seed must grow into the ground 
and die before you get the produce and the harvest. So, and, and every culture in the, in the world practically has a myth of a, of a dying God who comes back to life to, you know, to, to, to save the land and the people, whether it's Osiris or Adonis, the corn king. I mean, they're all there in history. And what you have in Christianity is almost this, this the way C.S. Lewis said it, the myth becomes fact. It now actually happens in history yeah. that this one comes and dies on behalf of others so that there can be life. And when we talk about being a Jesus follower, having being Christ-like or following Christ, we we don't mean that just morality. You know, we do as Jesus did, right? It means that our lives are Christ-shaped, mm-hmm. meaning we are we are following Christ, and the place He went was into service and suffering, and glory followed. There is the descent, you know, Paul talks about he descends from heaven into humility and death. And from that, the father is honored and then glorifies. And that's a, and that's our lives should have the same shape. And that is so countercultural because the culture that we, that we live in anyway, says build your empire. We just talked about this, I think the other day, but yeah, I, without paying attention, I'm constantly building my empire. Mm -hmm. If I'm not, if I'm not super intentional about surrendering to God and holding my life open-handed, I've got a plan that glorifies me. That's right. I mean, you can see that in Scripture. The, the building of the Tower of Babel right. and the building of the temple involved the same construction tools. But the goals behind those two buildings are very different. Mm-hmm. One was a, an, a, a temple built to self. You know, we, were, we will reach to the heavens. And the other was, a, was an act of worship to God. And yeah. so our lives follow the same thing. You can, build, you can build a Tower of Babel out of your life or you can build a temple. Have you experienced the resurrection life coming out of death in your own life? Oh, good heavens, yes. I mean, in the bellowing of Cain, of course, chronicles this, this whole story. But, you know, when I blew up my life in, in 2013 and everything fell apart, I mean, I lost... I lost, I lost everything except my family, my, you know, my, mm. my wife stayed with me and all, but, um, yeah, there was a, I struggled and I still struggle at times with who I'm, who am I? Um, the, you know, you you've, you find people do this, who have a career doing, you know, they're a, an accountant or a plumber or a teacher or whatever for, for 30, 50 years. And then they retire and don't know who they are. Mm. Like, who am I if I'm not the teacher or the plumber or right. whatever? Well, I had that, I had that in spades because it all felt like death. It was death, death, death. My my career, my job, my public reputation, it all just went away at my own hand. Um, and so there was this long journey of, God, who who am I? And who are you to me? And who are we together mm-hmm. if I'm not doing that? Because, I, I mean, I discovered I really didn't know what it was like to have a relationship with God that didn't involve ministry. Hmm. It was just me and God. And I'm guessing that if somebody had prior to the blowing up, as mm-hmm. you define it, prior to that, if anybody had asked you about your identity or who you were, you would have spit out the right answer. Yeah, I would have spit out the same answer everybody everybody does. I would have responded with my vocation. Right. Like, well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a seminary professor. I'm a sure. pastor in a church. And suddenly you don't have any of that anymore. And you start to you start to cast around going, well, what am I still? Well, I'm still a father. I'm still a husband. Mm-hmm. I'm still a child of God. And it begins to pare away mm. uh, like like the onion. You know, you pull mm-hmm. all the, the things off and and you're hoping there's a seed in the middle. Well, maybe an onion's a bad illustration because it's onion all the way down. There's nothing you peel right, there's right. nothing left. <laughs> right. And you're afraid that's what your life's gonna be like. Yeah. Like you peel away these things and discover that there's nothing. And yet, as we talked about earlier already, you know, God, if you make that despair or that loss your offering, 
right? If you mm. a broken and contrite heart, says David, that's my offering to God. If you make that your offering to God, then you discover that God will meet you in the middle of that, and you'll discover that as as much as you loved all of those other things, uh, being a child of God is frankly more basic. Mm. That's not something that you lose mm-hmm. even when you screw up, right? And so you find that in the midst of that death, God is still faithful to bring life. And it's a different life. It's not the same. You know, the losses are real. Adam and Eve don't get the garden back. Right. Moses loses the promised land. I mean, the losses are real, but God is faithful to bring redemption and grow newness out of those, out of that brokenness. So you made this statement that rattled me about <laughs> death being a qualifier for resurrection. Yeah. Something around yeah, along that's, those lines. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah, things have to die before they can live. I understand it. I just don't like I it. I don't like it. Don't <laughs> like it. Well, it's rooted, in, it's rooted in Jesus' own journey. Again, we've, we've, I've made the comment already this morning that when we say we are Christ followers or want to be Christ-like, we mean that in more than just our behavior. It's the very shape of our lives. I mean, you th- I mean, you got to kind of set this up like a story. You think about what, what the cross looked like. Um, the cross, historically, at least this is how the uh, Jewish people would have looked at it, it was uh, the place where false messiahs go to die. You know, before, before Jesus of Nazareth showed up on the scene in the, pr- the century prior to that, there'd been, there'd been a half a dozen would-be messiahs, claimants, okay. and they all ended up on Roman crosses. And they died, and that and was it. So if you think about it this way, the cross, if you'd have been a witness of it, it would have looked like complete failure, like a complete undoing hmm. of like everything. here we go again. Here we go again. A falsification of everything. All of Jesus' claims failed, right? He's just just another false messiah. But what's the difference? What changed it? I mean, we, we, hang, we hang crosses around our necks now as like signs of identity, signs, mm. of, like signs of victory. Where did that change come? Well, it comes with the resurrection. The resurrection is what changes the, all of this. It's, it's that, the, the point where the father looks down and says, I accept that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And when you look at, when you, if you were to ch- trace the citations of the resurrection through the New Testament, Every citation, every reference to the resurrection, except perhaps one, is in the passive. Christ was raised. Now, we used to think about Jesus bringing himself back to life. And as God, that's perfectly fine to think. But the text, the actual story, the way it presents it, it's that it was a work of the Spirit. Mm. Like, Like Jesus was willing to remain dead if that was the Father's will. That's how committed he was. And he waited for the Father for the spirit to come and resurrect him in his own time. So there's this radical dependence of Jesus upon the father. And, and so when the father raises Jesus back to life, it's like, it's, it, it's like a vindication of all of his claims. Mm-hmm. Yes, this one really was the Messiah. This one really was who he says he was. All of his promises and his words were true. That's why the resurrection is so important is because it, it's what distinguishes mere death from the Christian story. Mm-hmm. And again, our lives have that shape if we are a Christ follower. Right. But I think that so often we think that surrender is this, it, it is this um, passive, like, I'm not doing anything. Meh. Yeah. Yeah, meh. Kind yeah. of, you know, uh, lean back, feet up, I'm surrendering. But that's not what surrender looks like no. in my life. No, suffering is, is active. It's an active thing. Suffering is active, but also even just like the release. It's not like mm-hmm. meh. I n- I've never felt like I'm going to surrender this meh. Nope. <laughs> I felt like I'm sur- I'm going to surrender this, and there's a there's there's a lot of me involved in that surrender. Right. It is a kind of death. Yeah. 
It is. And so, that, and that's why, again, there's this, it's not just literal, it's also metaphorical that when we experience these deaths to self, I mean, that's how Paul talks about it, dying to self. Why? So that something else can grow. And so Christ's resurrection becomes almost the first example of this new thing yes. God is doing, the first fruits, the, almost a down payment on our own resurrection. I know that I will experience resurrection. Why? Because God has already done it in that one, in him. Jeremy, in our last conversation, you were talking about how Jesus relied on the Spirit to yes. be raised back to life. And this is a remarkable thing. It doesn't it, it it doesn't gel well with our visions of Jesus, partly because we we are so committed and rightly so to Jesus' divinity, his full divinity, that we have a tendency to just sort of imagine him sort of like, well, he's just God floating through the world. He does miracles because he's God. He comes back to life because he's God. You know, mm. and and it, and that's not false. He was God, and it would be, and it's not bad to talk that way. But when you actually look at how the text, how the scriptures re- relay it, they actually take a very different approach. They actually credit. Uh, they, they they paint Jesus as someone who is radically dependent upon the Spirit for mm. all things. You know, he's from the moment of his baptism, right? He goes, he goes this baptism that Jesus takes. It's a baptism he doesn't need. Remember, John's bapti- John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism for repentance and forgiveness right. of sin. Jesus is the last person in the world to need that. And right. yet, that's how he inaugurates his ministries with that action. As if to say, from the very first moment of his public revealing ministry, he's going to stand in the place of the sinner. He assumes the spot of the sinner right in front of John for a baptism of, of repentance and forgiveness. And the, the heavens open and the Father affirms it, saying, as if to say, you did exactly right. This is exactly the perfect way to inaugurate your ministry. And the Spirit descends. Mm. And then Jesus is from immediately, says Mark, he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit for the temptations. It's the Spirit who sends him out there. And one very profitable way to read those temptations is as the devil comes to him, every one of them, every one of those temptations is trying to get Jesus to reveal his true identity as, as divinity, as the Son of God. And Jesus refuses. Why? Because that's not the mission he's on. He mm-hmm. didn't come as a mission to just reveal divinity for us. He came to walk in our place. He came wow. to he came to uh, he came to be the sin bearer. And just as if I were in the wilderness and the devil came and said, "Turn stones to bread," I'd laugh in his face because I can't. I mm-hmm. would starve. That's all I can do. So Jesus, in a sense, puts himself in exactly the same position. And he says, you know, if the Spirit wants to do these things, there will be then this then the Spirit will do it through me. But I will not act on my own agenda or of my own accord. And he says this all through his ministry. I have not come to speak my own words, but the words right. of my Father. I'm not. I'm only doing what I see my Father doing. Right. If you've seen me, you see the Father. He is only interested in his Father's name, his Father's will, and his Father's kingdom. And the way the Scriptures speak it, the biblical authors say it, they say that that was all empowered by the Spirit. Which I think is immense comfort because we have that same spirit. That's exactly what Jesus says. It's even better, he says to his disciples, if I go away so that this one, this other one can come and then you will be empowered and you will do greater things Mm. than even I've done. So Jesus himself was the model of of what it means to be a, a, a human completely committed to God, living at the behest of the spirit at every moment. I've never quite thought about this this way, but I... I frequently use the words that just living in life with the Lord is for me is a constant dethroning of myself. Yes. It's a constant dethroning of myself. But I never thought about that in regards to the way that Jesus lived. 
Because he did the same thing. He does the same thing. His life was a dethroning. It was a, a um, not accessing all that is available to him as deity. That he, that he had a right to and that was present in him. And yet when the, when the biblical authors talk about it, they don't talk about it that way. They talk about a man who is radically dependent upon the Spirit for everything. And I think, wow, again, if we're going to be Christ-like, then we need to be as dependent upon the mm-hmm. Spirit as he was. So how do we do that? <laughs> uh, you need a wiser guide than I, because I, you know, you know it's you, you think about every activity of Jesus, he is always looking for what the Father is doing. And mm-hmm. I think as we move through life, as we move through our day, where what is God doing? Where is God? Go stand there. I got to tell you, I feel like the chosen mm. has really kind of awakened us to the humanity aspect of Jesus. I think so. And I think, and uh, historically, there's a, evangelicals tend to get skittish about the humanity of Jesus, understandably, because the 20th century consisted of one battle after another as to whether Jesus was God or just a good human teacher. Mm. So we've got a, you know, we've got this really strong sense of Jesus' divinity, but when he gets too human, we begin to get a little nervous because like, well, then is he really God? And mm. yet... All the good stuff seems to be in his humanity, as you, as yeah. you mentioned, and you see that coming out in the in the chosen, and because why did the Messiah had to be human? I mean, because that's what was promised to Eve. Someone, you know, from 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 the fruit of your womb, you you will be the one, and it will be. But where do you find a human that's not from the that doesn't have the sin problem? So you have that's why the incarnation becomes so necessary, and Jesus had to be human because he had to come and live that life that Adam was supposed to live. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about Jesus being our substitute, you know, we, we usually think about him dying in our place. Like yeah. he's dying the death that I was supposed to have because of my sin. And that's true, but it's bigger. It's better than that. Uh, we, we talked a few minutes ago about his, his baptism and the temptations and how he depended on the spirit. It's almost as if Jesus substituting work, it wasn't something that just happened on the cross. Mm-hmm. It was his whole life. It began yeah. there at the baptism, if, if not sooner, as he comes to live the life we were supposed to live and again becomes not just the model but the the first fruits of this new humanity that God yeah. is is doing. He lived the life that we were supposed to live so that we could know the Father. So and, that we can now live it. Yeah. Yeah, so that we can now live it and so we can know the Father. We were talking with Stan Jantz last week. He is the CEO of Come and See, which is mm-hmm. a ministry that was birthed out of The Chosen because he was so impacted mm-hmm. by meeting the authentic Jesus through The Chosen. But it led to a conversation about Jonathan Rumi, who plays the role of Jesus. And he was talking about how it's not only just a, an incredible challenge for him to play that role as the actor, but now the <laughs> world is kind of looking at Jonathan yeah. Rumi, and the it, there's there's a weightiness yeah. to taking on this role, and it's not just about his day job. It's not just about no, what his, he does on his screen. His life is on display. It's his life, and and there's a winsomeness about the way in which he portrays Jesus on screen in The Chosen that just draws us in. And the thing that hit me from this conversation is, shouldn't we all be feeling that weightiness? That's that's right. What he's, what he's experiencing as kind of a celebrity status, in a sense, is what all Christians are always facing. The world is watching. And the greatest, the greatest, if you want to talk about evangelism, the greatest evangelism tool we have is a life well lived. Because it's no good talking about, hey, you know, telling someone Jesus will come and change your life and Jesus will do all these things for if your life is in complete shambles and they right. look at you and go, Well, it doesn't work for you, why would it work for me? And it doesn't mean Christians don't have troubles and don't make mistakes and things like that, but but when you 
when you think about the kind of life Christians are supposed to live and live together specifically, you think about Jesus praying that prayer in John 17 for his disciples on the night, you know, his last night. And he prays, Father, let them be one. Mm -hmm. You know, let them live this kind of life together. And the model, the referent he uses is, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. one. It's like the model of the Trinity. It becomes this 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 Whoa. the metaphor for how we are supposed to to live together. Um, so Jesus and his Father, it's not just a theological reality. There's actually something there about the way we're supposed to live our life, as dependent on the Spirit as he was, that the great passions of our life as they were for Jesus, as he prayed, as he taught us to pray, are his Father's name, his Father's will, mm. his Father's kingdom. The, the what would Jesus do bracelets? Right, yes. Right, the, the inspiration there, or I think what happens off of Jesus lived the life that we should have lived is, well, then I want to do the things that Jesus did. I want to live the way that Jesus lived. Which is a which is a mixed bag because in, in one sense, very true, do what Jesus did. In another sense, well, he came with a specific mission and a mission that's not given to me. Like he was to be the sin bearer, die on the cross. And that's not literally given to me. I don't bear anybody's sin. So there is there is similarity and difference. Mm-hmm. And I think we get I think we get a little stuck when we talk about doing as Jesus did that we're thinking more or at least often in just terms of like like behavior. Like Jesus kept the 10 commandments, so I do too. A very right. performative kinds of look. Whereas I think the the way the church tradition and the scriptures themselves kind of talk more about it. They talk about more like Christ likeness or being formed in the image of Christ, which is something much deeper. It Again, it's almost a life that is shaped like Christ's life. So the values that were that Christ held and, you know, Christ was very clear about his values. He said it was his father's name, his father's will, his father's kingdom at the back of everything he Mm -hmm. did. So as we move through life, a life that's very different than the life that Jesus lived because we have cell phones and, you know, cars and airplanes, um, how do we live a life that's driven by the same values, dependent upon the same spirit for the glory of the same father Mm. that Jesus did? So we are following in steps he laid out for us so that we can live that sort of life empowered by the same spirit that, that as the biblical writers say, empowered him. So when, when we take that approach, being empowered by the spirit of God, as we live out our lives, we are then instructed not only to live the way that he lived, but to live the way that he lived in the, in the world that we live in today. So yes. there's instructions for, by the spirit, how to navigate Facebook. Yes. How to handle entertainment and all the options in front of us. Right, because it's it's not behavior-driven in terms of, like, commands. Mm-hmm. It's value-driven. You know, the Spirit comes and, and reinforces or clarifies, articulates the values of the kingdom, which is what Jesus came to discuss. He came to reveal the—I mean, Jesus' message that he got from John the Baptist was, repent, the kingdom of God is here. Yeah. And so Jesus' ministry, beyond sort of being the sin-bearer, is a ministry of— displaying his father's kingdom to the world so that the world knows what it looks like. And that is laid at our feet. Go live like the kingdom so that if the world wants to know what the kingdom is like, well, you should come to my church on Sunday and you'll see it. But that hinges on a relationship with the Holy Spirit and knowing what the Spirit, how the Spirit is leading. So how do you, Jeremy, Mm -hmm. nurture a relationship with the Spirit? 
Yeah, a tough, tough question, partly because I think there is some subjectivity to it based on personality. And it, it took me almost 50 years of life before I could actually articulate this. I'm a very, for those of you who know the Enneagram, I'm a five. I'm very rational. I'm very, you know, I like lists. I'm detail-oriented kind of things. I'm not generally very spontaneous and those sorts of things. Because of that, I have always struggled with the language of like listening to the spirit and doing what the spirit says and following those impulses, not because I don't think that's how the spirit works, mm -hmm. but because I don't, my framework doesn't absorb it that way. If I'm going to live a life surrendered to the Holy Spirit, led by, mm -hmm. empowered by the Holy Spirit, how do I nurture hearing him and nurture this relationship with him so I know how he's leading? There are a couple of ways, very, very different ways of answering that, that question. And, and, I, and, and I think that's probably that fits and makes sense because the spirit, uh, you know, what does Jesus say? It comes, it blows. You, you can't, the spirit has this way of working with each individual, the way they're built, because none of us, we're not built randomly. Right. Uh, the spirit doesn't, you know, the spirit gives spiritual gifts, but it doesn't, yeah. spirit doesn't do it randomly. So we are, we're formed and shaped for something. And so there's a sense of, in one sense, our meeting of the spirit will be governed a bit by how we're constructed. So, for example, I have uh, I have lots of Pentecostal and charismatic friends who speak about the voice of the spirit in ways that I don't disagree with. I just have no experience of. And this is the be the beauty of Christ's church and the beauty of how the spirit works is that I'm wired in such a way that I can't answer that question for you. There's lots of material out there. If you want to, like, how do you know what the Spirit's voice sounds like and what are the steps? There's lots of great material out there. I'm just not the one to tell you that. Mm. So my, the way I'm framed, um, I can tell you the way I have worked it and that will it will respond with some listeners and others will go, well, sure. that's very reduced. But again, there's, I think, the beauty of Christ's church. For me, the, the way the Spirit, the way I, um, work and move and try to respond from the spirit in life is less in terms of like the voice voice in my head. And like I said, I've got some good friends who they, they talk and I don't disagree with this. It's just, it's not me. They talk about like, well, the spirit told me to turn left here and then buy a gallon of milk at that gas station. And then like that, and I'm like, wow, I, you know, I, I wish the spirit would, for me, the spirit works more in terms of like, when I go to make a choice, I'm ask, I have to ask myself, what are the values of the spirit? Because when, when Paul talks about like the fruit of the spirit, he is he what he really means by that is the the fruit, the the manifestation, how does the spirit manifest it in our lives? Mm -hmm. It's manifested in love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, those attributes. So how do I live in such a way that the those the spirit's attributes, this fruit the spirit wishes to grow are present? Mm -hmm. So if I have to make a decision between X and Y, which one is more in harmony? with the spirit's values. So for me, that's, and that's a very rational process. It's a guideline. It's it's a, a, yes, it is a very rational process. Mm -hmm. And I know many Christians look, would look at that and go, that's not, the spirit just tells me what to do. And I say, great, follow it. Um, you know, go read the material on how to understand the spirit's voice versus your own or the spirit's voice versus the enemies or, you know, that that's all. But there's also the sense that our behavior isn't, um, it's not ungoverned. Mm -hmm. You know, the spirit, there are things the spirit won't say. God never contradicts. 
uh, what has been already said. So you can't say like, well, the spirit told me to go divorce my spouse, right? Because that's God has already spoken on that, um, those sorts of things. So there's a sense that, yes, li- that listening behavior, but then you also have this other conversation of we have, ha- we have been told what the values of the Father are and that the spirit is trying to grow in us. We have the values of Christ that the spirit is trying to grow in us. So how do we, uh, how do we go about life and decision-making and let those values dominate our choices. Mm-hmm. That's how I've had to think about it. And the spirit meets me in that journey and confirms or shuffles me left or right based on my attempt to live within those values. And that is a that is very logical it, yeah, answer to the question. They're a little bit more of a um a mystical take on that, maybe sure. if you will, is that for me. It's as I find out all those things that you just said that create your framework, mm-hmm. I find out all those things in the Bible. Yes. And when I read the Bible, I'm not just encountering words on a page. I'm encountering Jesus. He's yes. the word. And so there's this, there's both the logical and this mystical listening, relation, yeah. listening and, yep. and nurturing. And so the more that I spend time in God's word, the more those logical things, the information from the Bible frames my decision making. But also I feel like more the more time I spend in God's word, the more I'm able to hear the more familiar the voice gets. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And 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 if nothing else here, this is why we need each other. This is why the community of Christ needs each other because the spirit is at work in all these different ways. And when we are exposed to other people's journeys with the spirit, it broadens our own mind and opens things up. It's like it's like cross-cultural travel. It teaches us the breadth and width of what God is doing in our midst. Let's talk a little bit about how Jesus revealed the kingdom yes, to well, us in his life and his death and his resurrection. That's a great way to yeah, a great way to draw it to to a conclusion. Uh, as Jesus comes and offers this kingdom, first of all, to you know, to his Jewish brethren, right? This is his message he got from the from John the Baptist: "Repent, the kingdom of God is near." And so that establishes when you read the Gospels, you should be looking in a sense, for Jesus to be revealing the kingdom. Everything Jesus does is revealing his Father's kingdom. What are the miracles about? They're the miracles to show you what the kingdom is like, that in God's kingdom there are no blind, there are no mm-hmm. lame. There are, you know, that, that is what's promised. It is Eden sort of given back, the new heaven, new earth. It's, it's all pointing towards something. Now, of course, we know that the Jews of the first century rejected the kingdom um, at that point, and so it's spread now to, it went to the Gentiles and all that. So what we have this privileged place this place of responsibility now in history of being in this the kind of in this between time christ has inaugurated with his life death and resurrection this kingdom it's been proclaimed he's shown us what it was like through through his actions and his teaching and then told us to go and live it out and so we do but we're always we're always kind of living it in the face of the fall like the brokenness continues around us and we're trying to live in a kingdom that has not yet become the rule of the whole earth. So there's a sense that, you know, when you invite someone to come to your church, what you're really inviting them to do is come and see what the kingdom of God is like. Mm. And if you say, well, I can't invite them to my church, they won't see that. Well, that's that's not an indictment on the, the kingdom or the gospel. That's an indictment on us and our church, right. right? That we're not living the kind of life together that reveals, manifests the kingdom. 
I'm, I'm okay. So I'm just going to explain how this is hitting my brain. Sure. Just came from Australia, two mm. weeks in Australia, a, a week in India. The culture in each of those places very is different, so huh? different from one another. Also very different from, from here. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and in the same way, there's this culture, this kingdom culture that is very different from the culture of the world that we live in. Yeah, and that's that's one reason why, and you can say both things here, it's almost a paradox, wherever you go in the world, when you walk into a church somewhere, you're among family, mm-hmm. right? There's a sense that all churches are the same in that regard. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, they're family. At the same time, like you just said, the ch- churches are incarnate like their Lord. They, they, there's no abstract church. It exists in a culture with people of specific personalities and a specific values and things like that. So the Indian church, the Australian church, the American evangelical church, they all look radically different mm-hmm. because they, they're made up of different people in different cultures. And so there is this sense that the kingdom is this big, wide thing made up of all kinds of people. That's it. Every language, kindred, tribe, and nation. But the thing is, we still only live it partially, and that's the hope of the gospel, is we are looking forward to a day when that kingdom will be the rule of the whole earth, where we will meet it in its completeness. It's a kind of we're already inside something Mm -hmm. that is not yet. Yes. Isn't that paradoxical? Right. We've had a foretaste. Think of it like a preview to a movie. The preview to the movie, it has all the elements of the movie, the music, the scenes, things like that. But what's its point? What's its goal? Its goal is to make you want to go see the movie. Yeah, right. We, li- we live the kingdom out now in our fractured and stumbling ways with what goal? To make others want to come to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Oh, if that's what the kingdom's like, I want to be part of that. Right. Because there's a promise that what we live out partially and stumbling here and now is one day we're going to live perfectly and we're going to live it together. That's the promise of the gospel. And Jesus taught us to actually pray that we would be bringers of the kingdom as we walk through our days today, that we pray and we live into your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks for letting Perry and Shauna walk the real life journey with you. The content from the Perry and Shauna podcast comes from their live show, Perry and Shauna mornings on 89.3 Moody Radio, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Reach out to us by texting 800-968-8930 and please subscribe.